from Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thus the word of God. You may be seated. I was 10 years old in the summer of 1987 when our U-Haul truck bounced over the railroad tracks and just down the block to a very old house we pulled in the driveway. My father was a preacher in independent charismatic churches, and so every few years we would do this again. We'd pack all our things in the U-Haul. We would move to a new city, move into a new house near a new church. As we pulled up to the house that evening, it was obviously very old. As we went inside, there was no air conditioning. As we walked around opening windows and turning on ceiling fans, the floors creaked, there was dust everywhere. My mom and my sister got the broom out of the back of the truck and began to sweep the bedrooms. My father and I pulled a few things off so we could get to the mattresses We pulled those out and just laid them on the bedroom floors that evening. So I fell asleep by the open window that evening and was startled awake, seemingly just after I'd gotten to sleep, by the sound of a train blowing its horn. It blew over and over and over again. So in my confusion, I thought somehow the house must have ended up on the train tracks, and that's why the train kept blowing its horn. But then it passed the crossing, And I was left with just the roar of the train going by for a few minutes. And I calmed my beating heart, struggled to get back to sleep, only to later that evening be awakened once again by the sound of a train horn blowing over and over again and the roar of the train going by. A few months later, I was sitting at the dinner table, and I asked my parents, I'm like, why did they stop running the trains? And they looked confused, and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, when we first got here, the trains ran, like, all the time. 
They would wake us up. They were so loud in the middle of the night. Why did they stop running the trains? And they were looking at each other and looking at me like, what is he talking about? When just at that moment, happened to hear the sound of a train horn in the distance coming closer. And I was confused. I said, they just now started running them again. What happened? My mom figured it out first. She said, they didn't stop running the trains. You just got so used to the sound that you stopped hearing it. And I thought, that's impossible. I remember how loud that train was that first night. And so I began to start listening for it over the next few days. And sure enough, I would hear a train going by and remember, oh, yeah, it blew its horn. I remember hearing that now. But even trying to listen for it, it was hard to hear because I'd gotten so used to the sound of the train going by that it was hard to hear anymore. Our spiritual senses can become dulled in much the same way. David tells us in our passage this morning that the glory of God is being declared from the heavens, that the word of God is sweet like honey. And yet over time, it's possible that our spiritual senses become so dull that we no longer hear the glory of God being declared in creation. The taste of God's word is no longer sweet in our mouth. But as we look at this passage, I believe God wants us to know that we must hear the revelation of God in creation. We must taste the revelation of God in Scripture, and we must apply the revelation of God in our hearts. Verses 1 through 6, David begins by reminding us how we must hear the revelation of God in creation. He tells us what is revealed, how it's revealed, and to whom it's revealed. In verse 1, he begins by telling us how this declaration of God's revelation is made in creation. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens are declaring the glory of God to us, his glory and his handiwork, it says. Now, I want to address straight away, which I think is our natural tendency, and that is to think back to the scripture that we just heard read to us from Romans 1. I'm going to turn there and read it for us again. It's Romans 1. I just want to read 18 through 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that, are, that have been made, so they are without excuse. And I think we instantly think of this passage when we read Psalm 19. The parallels are very clear, aren't they? What Paul refers to as his divine attributes, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, and Psalm 19 are called the glory of God, and his handiwork. He talks about creation showing these things to us. And Paul does a good job of applying Psalm 19 to the subject that he is talking about. Namely, in Romans 1, he's talking about the unbeliever who has no excuse. They know there is a God. They have seen his invisible attributes in the things that are made. That is a right and proper use of Psalm 19. But 
it is not the primary intention of the psalm itself. I think if you read back through this chapter, you will see that never once does David mention the ungodly or the unrighteous. In fact, in verse 11, he says, by them, your servant is warned. And again, in verse 13, he mentions your servant. And then in verse 14, of course, he talks about my mouth, my heart, and he calls God my rock and my redeemer. So I think we should be careful not to read Romans 1 back into Psalm 19. We should take this first and foremost as being addressed to you and I. God's glory being declared in creation is heard in all the earth, as we'll get to momentarily, to whom has this revelation been made. But primarily, God is declaring his glory through all creation to you and I. We are the ones that benefit from this declaration of God's glory. I think we can see this even more clearly as we consider what does it mean to talk about the glory of God? Do you think, first of all, first of all, of God's glory, which was manifest in the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, where even the priests, the Levites, even Moses himself cannot enter the tabernacle because God's glory is there so richly. Or when the temple is first dedicated and the glory of God descends in the temple to such a degree that no one can enter the temple. Or do you think maybe of the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day by which God led the Israelites, and you think that is the glory of God. But the clearest expression of the glory of God before Christ sets foot on earth is, I think, in Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus 33, 18, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And in Exodus 34, God answers that prayer. And what does he say? In verses 5 through 7, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the declaration of the glory of God. These are the invisible attributes that Paul referenced. God's attributes, he is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is forgiving. Oh, he will by no means clear the guilty. But his nature is that he is forgiving and merciful and gracious. And that is for you and I. God is gracious and merciful in all that he does to us. And that is the declaration of God's glory that is booming through all creation for you and I to hear. He goes on to talk about the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The word that's translated sky here is the same word that in Genesis 1 is firmament. It is the sky above us. It is the whole dome of the heavens over the earth. Handiwork is literally the work of his hands, what God has done. You recall in Genesis 1, God had already created light, and yet he set lights in the firmament, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he had a specific purpose for them. They were to mark out times and seasons and years. 
So when he talks about his handiwork being displayed in the heavens, the lights that are in the firmament are intended to mark off seasons and times for us. And so we see his handiwork as he goes from day to day. What has God done today? From season to season, what has God done this season? And from year to year to year, looking back over the course of our life and beyond through all church history and biblical history, what has God done? And the skies are testifying above to what God has done. We have a word for this, right? What is the work of God's hands? That is providence. God's revelation is the testimony in creation and providence of what God has done. This is what is being testified to in creation. How is it being testified to us? Verses 3 and 4, it says, or I'm sorry, 2 and 3, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. This is speech without words, voice without sound. How is information communicated to us? How is God's glory communicated to us in a speech without sound? There is perhaps no people in the history of the world who is better able to understand how you can communicate speech without sound. We live in a world that is saturated with memes. If I were to show you a picture of Boromir, at the, at the Council of Elrond, you, most of you would probably hear the words in your head, one does not simply walk into Mordor. You can hear that without any sound, without any speech, no words even have to be printed on the picture. If you're familiar with it, you know. And the more familiar you become with God's creation, with how God has ordered the universe around us, the more you can hear God's speech the more you can hear it being testified to day to day, night to night. God is communicating. If we can communicate so much through a simple picture, how much more can God communicate through all of his creation, day after day, night after night, showing us the revelation of his glory and the works of his hands? Can we hear them? Children, do you think often about how every subject you learn in school is really testifying to the glory and the handiwork of God. When you study science and biology, you're really learning something about the goodness of God. As you study the water cycle and how the water evaporates out of a lake or ocean, it's carried across the land, it comes down in rain to feed the plants and animals and you and I, and then it runs back into the rivers to join the lakes again and start all over again. And this is all a testimony of the goodness of God who gives rain to the just and the unjust. How merciful, how forgiving is he that on us, on his enemies, God is providing water for free. When you study biology and how the bees pollinate the flowers and so the flowers are able to reproduce and the bees take home some of that pollen so the bees are fed. And so they are able to have more bees, and so they pollinate more flowers, and on and on, God caring for even flowers and bees. This is a testament to the goodness of God. When you study math, children, this is a testimony to God's logic, his wisdom, his orderliness. How he likes to do things is very structured and orderly. 
When you study history, you see God's power as God is directing all the events in human history, whether through peacetime and war, good times and bad, God's power is being exercised to direct all the events that have ever occurred towards his purpose and his goals, and he is fulfilling all that he desires. When you study history, you're really studying the testimony of God's handiwork. What has God done? That is how he communicates. To whom is this communicated? Verse 4 says it most clearly. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And then he carries on with this illustration of the sun. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. When we talk about God's revelation going out, over creation, someone will inevitably bring up, what about that person who lives in, pick your foreign country, where there's never been a missionary go to them? They don't know God. They don't know anything about God. How can God hold them responsible? In the same way, using this illustration of the sun, that person living in that distant land could say, well, no scientist has ever come to me and explained anything about there being a ball of fire in the sky. I've never heard anything about science. I don't know anything about this sun. No, of course not. Everyone has witnessed this testimony of God's glory and his handiwork. It is as evident to them as the sun shining all over creation. This is not the heat of anger mentioned there in verse 6. Like we may think of heat as what we will face when we step out these doors here in a little while. This isn't that sort of heat. It is the warmth and light of the sun that is freely given to you and I so that we all benefit and can take pleasure from it. We see this because this is not an angry sun. This is like a bridegroom coming out of his tent. He is like a strong man running his course with joy. This is the generosity and the joyful giving of God's revelation of himself to us. God did not have to tell us who he was. He testified in all creation around us. When you are hitting red light after red light after red light on Monday morning, all of creation around you is resounding with the glory of God and testifying to you of his goodness and his purpose in your life. If you're homesick and you can't get out, the skies above are testifying to the work of God's hands, his providence in your life, whether you are sick or healthy. Whether you're at home, at school, at church, wherever you are, God's testimony of his glory is surrounding you. It is carrying you at every moment of the day. It is all around you. And we can become deaf to it like I became deaf to the sound of a train, but it is all around us if we will merely stop to listen. The world around us has stopped their ears They've tightly shut up their eyes to try and avoid this testimony of God's revelation all around us. But let us who have ears to hear, hear what God is saying to us at every moment through his creation. David has called us, first of all, to hear God's revelation in creation. 
he goes on in verses 7 to 10 to turn our attention to taste God's revelation in Scripture. He starts in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This word in verse 7, the law of the Lord, that word law is the word Torah in Hebrew. And law is the best translation we can make of it. But oftentimes in translation, you lose a little bit of the nuance and meaning. We have this in English, right? If you walk into the house and you say, what is that aroma? Well, you know you're smelling something good. Probably somebody's baking something. If you walk into the house and you say, what is that smell? You know you're not smelling something good. Aroma and smell, they both basically mean the same thing. And Torah and law is an accurate translation. Literally, Torah is instruction, and it carries in mind the idea of a father's instruction, which to the Hebrew mind especially, what the father said to do was law. You did it. It was expected. That's why it's the best translation. But our idea of law is probably characterized by the sort of laws we see in culture around us, right? They are cold and impersonal laws that come from some distant government that we don't even know. But the law of the Lord is the instruction of our Father who loves us, who cares for us, who has only our good in mind. That's why it's the law of the Lord. It uses the covenant name for God here. This is our God who has made a covenant with us, who has bound himself to us for our good and his glory. It says this law is perfect. If we were to stop and meditate just on that, I think it would boggle our minds. The law of the Lord is perfect. How many reams of paper do you think it would take if we were to print out all the laws that govern just prosper, just one small city in Texas? We would have stacks and stacks of them, right? Home inspections, business inspections, zoning laws, laws for traffic, laws on everything, and all probably very useful. But God's law is so perfect that he can be compressed down into just 10 commandments. We recited them together earlier. It took us, what, maybe a minute, a little more than a minute, to recite all of God's commands, which Jesus even goes on and summarizes in one sentence, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that law, if we apply it to our lives, if we live it the way God intended us to, as he illustrates throughout Scripture, that law will govern every action in our life from birth to death. It is perfect. And in just 10 short commands, which can be summarized in one sentence, God's law is communicated to us. How useful is this law to us? It says it revives the soul. Does your soul need reviving today? It has been a hard couple of years, hasn't it? 
the man that wrote, these are the times that try men's souls, could have written them yesterday morning. We have had a global plague. And worse yet, we've had disagreements even amongst ourselves as brothers and sisters over how to respond to a global plague. We've had wars. We had unemployment for a while. And then we have not enough people to employ global supply chain issues, natural disasters. It seems hardly a week goes by that there isn't some new thing that happens that shakes the very foundations of our civilization. And that's just what's happening in the world around us. You have controversy with your spouse, with kids, family, at home, problems at work, financial difficulties, sucking your soul. A broken spirit dries the bones. But the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul like a cup of cold water on a hot day. It revives the soul. How does it revive the soul? Well, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Are you struggling with a difficult decision? God's law gives you wisdom. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. Are you burdened with sorrow? God's law rejoices the heart. His commandment is pure. We live in a cesspool society, don't we? And yet, God's commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Do you have fear of man, man's rules? Well, the fear of the Lord reminds us that God endures forever. His law endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Does the injustice of the laws of man, the rules of man, weigh down your soul? God's rules are true and righteous altogether. If you ever watched one of those antique shows or the pawn shop show, and somebody will bring in what looks like just this most beat up, worthless piece of junk, and he says, I don't know, I think maybe it's worth 20 bucks. I brought it out of grandma's attic. And the man says, well, I don't know. Let's, let's bring our expert appraiser over. And the expert appraiser looks at it and says, oh, it is very old, and if you notice here, this mark indicates that this is one of only five or six, and I've never seen one in such good condition. This is probably worth thousands of dollars. And you think, wow, that old piece of junk. I need to go clean my attic, you know, clean out the garage. But you see, it wasn't our estimation of what that object was worth. It wasn't the seller's estimation of what it was worth that makes the difference. It's the expert appraiser who knows the true value of the item. David here functions as our expert appraiser on the value of God's word. He says, it is more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. The laws of God are more worthwhile, more valuable than gold. They truly are. Maybe you're here this morning and you brought your Bible in from the car where it sat this week. And that little thin dust of film you brushed off before bringing it in testified to the value that you placed on God's word today. Our expert appraiser says that God's word is worth more than gold. We have it so good today, don't we? There's probably none of us that doesn't have multiple copies of the Bible per person 
in our house. We have it on our computer, on our phones. It's able to be accessed all the time. But since it's so common to us, maybe we fall into the temptation of thinking it is common and it is not as valuable as it truly is. But for most Christians throughout the history of the world, for many Christians around the world today, they would sell almost everything they owned to just have one complete copy of God's word. Because as our expert appraiser tells us, it is more valuable than gold. Or maybe this week, you did read God's word. You know that's what you should do as a Christian. And so you did. You sat down for 15 minutes and dutifully, like a busy man checking an item off a to-do list, you read God's word. You closed it and you said, I did what I'm supposed to do. And you went on about your day. But God here says that they are more to be desired than gold. And also it is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. We live in a fast-paced world. You can save the world in two and a half hours in a movie. You can solve any crime there is in one hour on TV. You can, in 30 minutes, forget about all the problems of the world and just laugh at a sitcom. And in a 15-minute devotional before your first cup of coffee, you can solve all of your spiritual problems. But God's word is actually sweeter than honey. When we take the time to savor it, to taste its sweetness on our lips, to meditate on it, to think on it, and we begin to refresh those spiritual senses, we understand that it is reviving the soul. And it revives our senses so that we can perceive it as more valuable than gold. So that we can perceive it as sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. David has told us that we must hear God's revelation in creation. He has reminded us that we must taste God's revelation in scripture. But he goes on these last few verses to tell us that we must apply God's word to our hearts. In verse 11, he says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. It is not enough to merely know that God is testifying to his glory in creation. It is not enough to merely hear the words of Scripture or read the words of Scripture. It is in keeping them there is great reward. It is doing God's law in which we have reward. So quickly, I see three rewards that we get from applying God's law to our hearts. In verse 12, first of all, it will search us out from hidden sin. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. These are the secret sins that we don't think about, that we hide in the darkest parts of our heart, not to deal with. Our heart is deceitful above all things. Rarely Will the heart bring to your attention some new sin that you've been committing? In fact, it's better at justifying us over the sins that we do recognize. But God's law searches us out for the hidden sins, the secret sins, what has been called in one book, respectable sins. Gossip, pride, impatience, the sort of sins that we don't generally want to deal with. Yet God's law searches them out. And what is the reward that we get from that? Well, as God's law searches out those secret sins in our hearts, 
He brings them to our attention. We can confess them. We can turn from them. And then we have this assurance that we will be declared innocent from hidden faults. Second reward we get is we will be kept from presumptuous sins. In verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. These are the sins we do know about, that we're aware of, you struggle with on a regular basis. You have a bad morning and you bite your spouse's head off, take it out on the kids, coworker, whoever's nearby gets a taste of your sharp tongue. Children, maybe you're tempted to tell a lie to a teacher, a parent, or one of your friends. I think we're all tempted to covetousness in our society where advertisements are everywhere. Covetousness, envy that God has given someone else something that he hasn't given me. Maybe you struggle with lust or even pornography. Pray as David prays here, let them not have dominion over me. Maybe this is the first time you've ever darkened the door of a church. Maybe you've been here for many years. Maybe you're like me who attended church from the time I was a child. And yet, what people didn't know about me was that sins did have dominion over me. And maybe the Holy Spirit would convict you as he did me one day about 11 years ago and say, these sins that have dominion over you, I can set you free. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that, I would urge you, even right now, repent of them. Confess those sins to God. Pray this prayer. Let them not have dominion over me. Trust, fully trust in the work of Christ done on your behalf so that you may have this assurance that David has in verse 13, I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Oh, what a reward. God's word is able to sanctify our souls of every sin. There is no sin beyond the power of God's revelation to cleanse our hearts. There is no sin that you have to live with for the rest of your life. There is no sin that he is not able to gradually and over time wash away, cleanse your heart, and free you from its dominion. And third, as we apply God's revelation to our hearts, he will change even our words, even the thoughts of our heart. He says, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The tongue is impossible to tame. But even when we are sometimes able to bite our tongue and not say what we'd want, if people could hear the things we are saying in our minds, they would be horrified at times, right? Surely I'm not the only one, right? And yet as we apply God's revelation to our hearts, God is able to change our words. He's able to change our thoughts, the superscription to this psalm says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. This which is originally composed to be a song to be sung. And it clearly ends, you can see here in these last few verses, it is a prayer to be prayed. It is something to be meditated on and savored and tasted for its sweetness. As we sing God's word, 
as we sing words inspired by Scripture, as we, see, as we pray God's Word, as we meditate on God's revelation throughout the day, it will begin to change our hearts. And we know that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks so that even our thoughts, even the words of our mouth would be made acceptable unto God. So finally, Peter said in 2 Peter 3.1 that he was stirring up our minds by way of reminder. I do not think that I have said anything this morning that you did not already know. You know of God's revelation and creation. You know of God's sweet revelation in Scripture. You know to apply God's revelation to your hearts. Yet, just like how I had to be reminded to think, to hear about the train going by, Sometimes our senses can be dull and a reminder to stop and listen to God's glory being declared in creation. A reminder to stop and savor and taste the sweetness of Scripture. A reminder to apply and keep God's law in our hearts is what we need. This reminder will help us to get the rewards that are promised here to us. God sanctifying us making us acceptable in his sight because of the work of Christ in our behalf, because of his Holy Spirit working in our hearts to apply his revelation to us, we have the assurance that we have been made acceptable and that we are being made acceptable to our Father. That's what I long for, and I know you do too. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We are so incredibly grateful that you condescended to reveal yourself to us. That you have surrounded us with the symphony of revelation and all of creation around us. That you have communicated to us the words of life itself in scripture. Oh, help us, oh God, to apply this to our hearts. Help us to savor the sweetness of your word and to hear what you are saying to us in creation, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.